Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande, Episode 1, Las Villas del Norte. I'm Brandon Seal. Out of the corner of his eye, Francisco Rocha saw something. Or more accurately, he felt something. Because when he turned his head, he saw nothing more than the tops of a few young mesquite trees. But he couldn't shake the feeling that there was something out there and two decades of working the brush country north of the Rio Grande had taught him to trust his instincts. It was moments like this that reminded Francisco of the terrors that came with the freedom of the frontier. It was the freedom that had drawn him here, just as it had drawn the other first Spanish settlers of the lower Rio Grande Valley. Yet this freedom that Francisco and other early settlers of the Rio Grande sought wasn't something that they were fleeing from. No, Francisco and his people were always moving towards something, seeking autonomy within the tradition that had produced them, more so than independence from it. This is why one of the first things that the residents of Revilla did after founding their town in 1750 was to build a stone church, a reminder of the great Hispanic and Catholic tradition of which they were a part, and which at that time was the empire upon which the sun never set. The residents of Revilla completed their red sandstone church in about 1767, the same year that the 26 founding families of the region were formally granted their ranches. These ranches were so large that they were measured in 4,400-acre sitios, and founding families were often assigned more than one. The founding families' grants straddled the Rio Grande for 30 miles to the north, reaching halfway up to Laredo, each one touching the river along a narrow band just a few hundred yards wide, but then stretching inland for as much as five or ten miles. And once these ranches had been patented by the crown, they needed workers, which led the region to put out a call for goat herds, cowboys, and domestics from neighboring Nuevo León and Coahuila. Francisco Rocha had been one of the men to answer this call. When Francisco arrived in the little town of Revilla, situated on the south side of the Rio Grande, near where it's joined by the Rio Salado, he found a splendid, fully formed little community of maybe 500 or so people. And this was exactly what had been envisioned 17 years earlier by the architect of the settlement of the lower Rio Grande, José de Escandón. Rather than relying on missions to turn Native Americans into Spanish citizens, or on Spanish soldiers to bring their families with them when they established strategic forts. Escandón's idea was to bring entire civilian communities and plant them in terras at their new locations. In some way, he was drawing on a very old Spanish tradition of viewing the town as the basic building block of society. To use the Spanish terminology, it was villas, pueblos, and ciudades, depending on their size, that were granted rights by and against the government. It was villages, towns, and cities that ensured that the daily exercise of government continued uninterrupted even when that government was in dispute or when the seat of authority was far away. It was a system that had worked in the Iberian Peninsula for the better part of a millennium now and had been perfected over two centuries in the New World as well by the time it reached the Rio Grande with Escandón in 1750. Over an eight-year period, Escandón settled almost 20 such frontier communities throughout the region, stretching from the San Antonio River to the north, arcing west across the Rio Grande and tracing the eastern foothills of the Sierra Madre, and ending down at the long-established community of Tampico. 
Most of these 20 little pueblos wouldn't survive, such as the one that Escandon planted at the future site of Corpus Christi, Texas. But the five along the lower Rio Grande became spectacular successes. Recall, of course, that in 1750, the Rio Grande, or the Rio Bravo, as they called it, wasn't a border. The neighboring province of Texas ended at the Nueces and Medina rivers. The Rio Grande, instead, was the heartland of this new province that Escandón called Nuevo Santander. And the five pueblos along the lower Rio Grande, which quickly grew into Villas, were Laredo, on the north side of the river, and Revilla, Mier, Camargo, and Reynosa, on the south bank, in that order. In 1784, Matamoros was established on the Gulf Coast, and would quickly grow to become perhaps the most populous and commercially important of the Rio Grande Villas. Yet precisely because these Rio Grande Villas were part of such a gloried and globe-spanning empire, they were pretty far down the list of concerns of the Spanish crown and its representatives in the New World. The entire Spanish imperial system, in fact, was set up to collect revenue from the fringes and funnel it back to the centers of power. Of course, it wasn't designed this way out of pure heartlessness. It was simply expensive to administer and protect such a far-ranging domain. Appreciating that, didn't help you much, though, if you were Francisco Rocha, living out on the edge of civilization. This became the great unifying grievance of the Rio Grande Vias, a sense that their sovereign was supremely indifferent to their concerns. Indeed, the only real contact that a goat herd like Francisco had with his king was when he paid inflated prices for trade goods that passed through all the different middlemen, monopolies, and tariff duties required for those goods to reach the edge of empire. And what did all these extra costs buy Francisco? What protection did all of his dutiful remittances to the crown secure for him from whatever was rustling around out there in the brush now? Francisco shifted his eyes over to his goat herd, looking for any sign that maybe they had picked up on the sounds that had unsettled him. But the goats grazed on, more interested in their next bite than in anything going on downwind. Francisco checked over his other shoulder, but again, saw nothing. He crossed himself and decided not to think about it any further. Then he nudged his mare forward, angling her into the grazing goat herd and pushing them toward fresher pasturage up ahead. After his arrival in the Villas in 1767, Francisco quickly married a local girl named Magdalena, with whom he would have three daughters over the next eight years. During that period, Francisco bounced around various ranches, learning the skills that the residents of the Spanish North American frontier came to pride themselves on most, stock raising and horsemanship. In more civilized parts of New Spain, a common man like Francisco would never have been able to afford a horse, much less be permitted by law to ride one. Here, on the stock raising frontier, however, no one would have even tried to enforce such a silly law. Around 1780, Francisco sought out work with the same family that his wife, Magdalena, had worked for for most of her life, a family with a large ranch located about halfway between Revilla and Laredo on the north side of the Rio Grande. Francisco was hired and quickly promoted up to horsebreaker in this new outfit, a position of some respect in a community like Revilla. Being a horseman, however, also meant that Francisco was particularly well attuned to his mount so that when his mare perked up her ears all of a sudden, Francisco's stomach dropped. She too had heard something. Once again, 
Francisco scanned the horizon through the June morning mugginess, resting his eyes on 15-minute sectors long enough to detect even the subtlest movement. After several minutes of scanning, however, again, he saw nothing. Francisco told himself that he was just on edge. And the truth was that he had good reason to be. On his 30-mile ride up the Rio Grande from Revilla a few days prior, he'd stayed the night in a Native American village. The village was on full alert since a gruesome attack in Laredo back in March had left six dead and much of the town of Laredo smoldering in ruins. This tribe of Carrizos, as the Spanish called these friendly natives, openly wondered if their little village was next. Their village sat just a day's ride south of Laredo, at a location that would later become Zapata, Texas, but that even into the 20th century was often referred to by locals as La Habitación, as in La Habitación de los Carrizos, the living place of the Carrizos, which was also a subtle acknowledgement that unlike most other tribes in Spanish North America, the Carrizos had been given full legal title to their land. They had never been reduced to missions, and in fact, by 1790, most of them spoke Spanish. The Carrizos were actually very much a part of the community of the Rio Grande Vias. In Laredo, they constituted fully one-seventh of the population. And the Carrizos were at least nominally Catholics, though in truth, they lived a mixed practice that included ancient peyote medicine rituals. Indeed, it would be the Carrizos that would pass their peyote rituals into North American native religious practice, ironically, through the tribe that was terrorizing both the Carrizos and the Rio Grande Vias now, the Apaches. Sometime between 1400 and 1600, the Apaches had followed the buffalo down the Great Plains and into Texas. The Lipan Apaches in particular broke off from the larger Apache migration perhaps sometime around 1650 and continued to push south and east into the regions decimated the century prior by European diseases and new Spanish slaving expeditions. The Lipanes now greatly aided by their weaponization of the horse as well. By the mid-1700s, they appeared on the lower Rio Grande, just around the same time as Escandon and his settlers were doing the same. Initially, Lipan raiders had contented themselves with taking horses and livestock, and a sort of uneasy peace prevailed for the first generation of contact. But a series of raids in 1780 that left several dozen inhabitants of the Villas dead marked a violent turn, for reasons that are hard to know, but easy to guess at because the growing Rio Grande Vias sat right on the key river crossings and trade routes across the Rio Grande. And by 1780, Apaches had come to rely on a trade in stolen Spanish livestock with French traders in Louisiana to arm themselves against the newest arrivals to the Texas Plains, the Comanches, who soon enough would make their presence known in the Rio Grande Vias as well. The 1780 Lipan Apache raids forced the Rio Grande Vias to work together for their common defense, including with the Carrizos, who decided to cast their lot with the Spanish. And in this coordinated action, you can begin to see the initiative, autonomy, and local control that the Rio Grande Vias would so come to treasure. Starting in 1783, the Rio Grande Vias organized citizen patrols, like the Compañías Volantes of San Antonians that we saw in Season 1. They sent these patrols out to monitor Lipan Apache raiding trails and watering holes in the region to their north. And they seemed to work. For seven years, there were no major attacks on the Rio Grande Vias. Peace prevailed. 
which is what had made the violent Laredo raid of March 1790 all the more shocking. The Lipan Apaches had returned. And yet intensified patrols since the March raid had found nothing. Even the Carrizo scouts who rode out with the Compañías Volantes had been unable to find any clues as to where the Lipanes had gone or where they were going. Which was particularly concerning to a man like Francisco, who esteemed the Carrizos and their knowledge of the land above all others. The Carrizos had taught Francisco and many of his countrymen so much already. How to grind mesquite beans into flour, where to find sources of clay for pottery making, how to weave the fibers of native plants into rope, or ixle, as they called it, how to boil the bitter bark of all thorn bushes to treat the fevers that came with the recurring malaria outbreaks in the region, and so much more. Actually, according to Carrizo tradition, Francisco was himself part Carrizo, which maybe helps to make sense of the name that some Spanish observers gave to the Carrizo language. Mulato, they called it. Here's what I mean. Normally the term mulato, which of course comes into English as the dated term, a mulatto, in the Spanish caste system of the period, this described a person of mixed Spanish and African descent, an Afro-Spanish American. Which makes it a strange term to apply to an Indian dialect. But it leads me at least to wonder, was there some kind of regular mixture of Carrizo Indians and Afro-Spanish Americans going on in the Rio Grande Valley at this time? The Rio Grande Vias actually did boast an unusually high population of mulatos. According to one historian, quote, At one time or another, African genes coursed through the blood of 25-47% to 47 of the inhabitants of the riverine villages, end quote. Including through the veins of our own Francisco Rocha, who appears in the census rolls, just like his wife Magdalena, as a mulatto. Like restrictions against the riding of horses and the wearing of spurs, rigid class and caste distinctions in new Spanish society decreased in direct proportion to one's distance from the centers of authority. Everyone on the frontier had to work, and as a corollary, everyone, even mulatos like Francisco Rocha, had the opportunity to rise, as indeed Francisco had. Francisco, who had started out as a humble goat herd, by 1790 had been promoted from horsebreaker the caporal, or range boss, which actually gave him responsibility for two other goat herds who were out there with him, campeando, on the morning of June 9, 1790. Francisco and the goat herds had split up the herd that morning to try to separate the animals as far as possible and maximize their grazing efficiency. But so now, when once again Francisco was certain that he had felt a movement off to his left, he hoped, he prayed that maybe it was just one of his goat herds come back to tell him something. Francisco rotated his hips, turning his whole mount toward the northwest, toward the movement that he had felt, hoping, praying, to see one of his companions riding toward him. But instead, a quarter mile away, he saw exactly what he hadn't wanted to see. Six Native Americans, mounted, facing him head on. They were tall, taller than his brother Carrizo's, these Indians close to six feet tall, made to seem even taller by how comfortably and erectly they sat their mounts. Two of them carried man-length lances with two-foot-long blades, ornamented with feathers. One carried a rifle, and the others carried longbows. All of them seemed to have either a club or a knife, or both strapped to their waists, and painted buffalo-hide shields strapped to their backs. 
They wore pants of worked buckskin with a slit up the outside fastened with buttons tucked into high-topped soft-soled boots. Moccasins, I suppose you'd call them, but in truth they were brush-popping, snake-proof boots. Being summer, their painted buffalo-hide cloaks lay across their horses' backs, and their torsos were bare, except for the red, black, and white paint which decorated them. Their hair hung down their backs, some fastened at the nape of their necks, others ornamented with silver buckles, and others still with braided-in horsetails, which hung down all the way to their horses' croups. It was only once they were close enough for Francisco to realize that their faces were entirely hairless. No wisps of beard, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, as was the Apache fashion, that Francisco's brain screamed at him, Lipanes. He debated in his head what he should do. Fighting them seemed out of the question. I mean, he carried with him a long club, or a macana, as he called it, and he could make a pretty fair weapon out of his horsehair lasso, too, but he was simply outnumbered. He could try to talk to them, project confidence, and hope that they were just wanting to trade. Not every encounter with Lipan Apaches ended violently. Indeed, there were many in Revilla who made a nice living buying livestock from Lipanes. Never mind that it was probably livestock that the Lipanes had stolen from their own countrymen somewhere else along the Spanish frontier. But something in Francisco's gut told him that day that these six weren't in a deal-making mood. And then Francisco remembered his two goat herds. He was responsible for these younger men, these men of his own community. He was their caporal. And maybe it was that thought that led him to spur his horse and ride. His little mare had been bred to have the quick reflexes of a cutting horse, and so she kicked up into a gallop almost from a standstill. Francisco and his mare rode hard, northeast, away from the river, following the property lines of the rancho, trying to reach his other two goat herds. It would be six months before Francisco's body was found. The two other goat herds were killed that day as well. And after the Lipanes finished them off, they then killed two more goat herds on a neighboring ranch. Then, two weeks later, the Lipanes struck again, killing five more residents of the Rio Grande Vias and taking six children captive. Between March and July of 1790, Lipan Apache raiders killed 25 people, took seven children captive, and stole or slaughtered 23,499 pesos worth of livestock. By September, the Lipanes had grown so bold as to attack the Presidio del Rio Grande itself, just northwest of Laredo, where they killed 22 of the soldiers there. The entire Spanish Rio Grande frontier retreated in on itself, to mourn, to recover, and to respond. Because they did respond. After they had dried their tears and mourned their dead, the residents of the Rio Grande Villas rode out to meet the Lipan Apache threat head-on, just as they would meet the Comanche threat, the Spanish Royalist threat, the Centralist threat, the Texian threat, and every other threat that came their way in the turbulent first century of the Rio Grande Villas' existence. And that's what this season of our podcast is about. About a land and a people that have had to fight at almost every turn just to survive. Changing governments and changing flags have, more often than not, brought the residents of the Rio Grande more of the same. Neglect and a mistrust of their deeply independent nature. Yet time and again, the people of the Rio Grande have risen up to fight for their freedom and to fight for their traditions. We don't know exactly how Francisco Rocha's youngest daughter, Maria Antonia, processed the trauma of her father's death. 
But I feel like it says something that when her first son was born seven years later, she didn't name him after her murdered father or even after her new husband. She named him after herself as if she wanted to pass on her strength in the face of trauma rather than the memory of the trauma itself. And indeed, her son, Antonio, would come to represent the concentrated strength of the Rio Grande frontier more perfectly than any man before or since. His strength would attract hundreds, thousands of men to him, men willing to fight and die for the independence of the land where his grandfather, Francisco, had been killed, and the land that would eventually come to bear his name. This is the story of Antonio Zapata, namesake of Zapata County, Texas, and the baddest-ass Afro-Mexicano-Tejano that you've probably never heard of. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence for the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned Corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library. And in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here. And I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Noso Media. That's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Vías del Norte, A History from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Vías del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesarino Hosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tapilan Coahuilteca Nation and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation for their guidance too. And as a parenthetical, you'll note that the modern complete name of the Carrizos is the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation. Come Crudo in Spanish means raw eaters, a reference to the observation of an early Spanish explorer who noted that the natives of this region ate their meat raw. Well, I can't help but observe 
that at almost precisely the point in his journey that placed Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca at this spot along the Rio Grande, he tells us a story about trying to cook some meat over a fire and having one of the natives run over and frantically slap it out of his hands. It suggests to me that the regional taboo against cooking meat reached back several hundred years in the region. I just love these threads of continuity, and there's a lot of them this season, so be on the lookout. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.